Okay, we all know the phrase money talks, and that's certainly now the case when it comes to climate change. In recent weeks, we have seen just how court actions, shareholder revolts, divestments, and consumer-led buying habits are all coming together to accelerate the pace of change. And that's despite all those years of warnings from scientists, or the heartbreaking sight of thousands of terrified kids going on strike from their schools, or even the demands of politicians and world leaders all around the globe. How can it be that only the threat to the bottom line is what provokes changes of policy and action from the boardrooms? And might it be that it's banks who now emerge as our unlikely allies and saviours as we enter what's sure to be a new era of green commercial opportunity and nature-led necessity? Welcome to episode 5 of Sustainable Scotland with me, Sean Milne, a journalist and media consultant focused on climate change. This is the podcast that looks at the people and organisations who are helping to make Scotland a more sustainable place to live. Today we wanted to take a look at climate finance, and I'm joined by someone I hope can give us a real perspective on all of this, and that's James Close, NatWest Group's trailblazing first head of climate change, and previously a director of climate for the World Bank, and someone who describes himself as a stubborn optimist. James, welcome. Thank you, Sean. Great to be with you today. Let me ask you straight away, can we buy our way out of climate change? No, or is it, should we have to? Well, that's a great question. And I think it centres around uh, the role that economists would play in here, which is we've really got to price the externality, the fact that carbon dioxide, as we know from the scientists, has an impact on our planet. Um, and we need to uh, make sure that we can embed that price into the transition that we're making from where we are today, where fossil fuels and carbon dioxide have played a really important role in growing the economy and getting us to where we are, to where we need to be in the future, which is reducing those emissions and um, mobilizing financial flows to support that. Uh, we uh, at NatWest uh, signed up to the a banking Alliance for Net Zero as part of the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero. Um, and we see this coming together of asset owners, asset managers and bankers as being a really important part of coordinating our efforts uh, to deliver this transition. And I think that's the way we're going to mobilise finance. We do need those price signals, but we also need the uh, commitments and the targets that we're setting ourselves to make sure that we can get this money moving. And are you quite optimistic about that? Because you know, for us sort of lay people looking from the outside in, sometimes there seems to be sort of a bit of reticence dragging their feet from some organisations. And then you have others who are absolutely leading the way forward. Now, where do you think we are just now? Is it still very much in the early stages? Are we quite far down the road? Well, I think we're still learning uh collectively in terms of what expectations are. You've seen that through some of the recent uh, work that's been done by shareholder activists uh, in the fossil fuel space. I think for us as a bank, uh, it really came back to the realisation that we wanted uh, finance to be purpose-led uh, and we, we expected to put in place a purpose-led strategy for the organisation. And when we looked at how purpose linked to the sorts of things that we could do and support, climate change became a very important uh, pillar of delivering that purpose-led strategy. And that gives us that leadership position and has enabled us to get to the point where we can commit 
to really ambitious targets and driving our activities around it. And I think ultimately, um, everybody's going to have to get there. I mean, that's the galvanizing force of this net zero objective uh, that really has taken hold, I think, in the last couple of years. And it was you know, anticipated by the Paris Agreement five years ago, but we're now seeing the implications of it uh, in the way in which um, businesses are mobilizing and the way in which policies are lining uh, towards reducing emissions. Because if we keep still, still keep putting emissions up into the atmosphere, the temperature will keep rising, and that puts us under a intolerable pr- pressure uh, to deal with um, sustainability in a, a future climate that works for the planet. I guess that's a tricky balancing act for banks and, and other lenders because you've got your commercial returns, you're a business, you have to make money and profits, you have to serve the interests of your shareholders. And in the past, some of that has involved financing some of these schemes that have created the emissions for some of the reasons you mentioned there, and it kept the economy going, it built it forward. And now it's how do we, we balance it out? Is it all about cash and profit? Or do banks also have some kind of moral responsibility to, to push us forward? Um, well, I think uh, the, the concept of finance being purpose-led, using it for productive sources, uh, is central to the way in which we have to think about money. Um, and I think we learned that from the financial crisis and, and what happened when uh, money was being deployed um, in a way that wasn't consistent with uh, the future long-term benefits for all stakeholders. Um, and as a bank, we have a balance sheet that we can use and deploy, um, and we allocate that in a way which is consistent with um, our purpose-led view of the world, but also in terms of our risk appetite and where we see risk in the future. And we expect that to lead to you know, appropriate returns for our stakeholders, um, and, and particularly in a financial sense from our shareholders who, um, you know, do expect a return on their capital. That's what we're here to deliver. Um, and we're trying to deliver that in the way that is consistent with uh, our long-term objectives and, you know, really the expectations that our customers have around what we can do to help them and how we can uh, support them. It's quite interesting just what you're saying about considering how we use that finance when you think about other schemes as well, because that's probably very much about investments and strategies and where we go. I've noticed a lot in politics recently, there's also been chats about things such as four-day weeks, how mm-hmm. that can impact climate and what we do, or even um, you know, sort of universal incomes. You know, So mm-hmm. there, there's a ceiling. Do we even need to look ahead to those kind of schemes as part of all this to say, well, it's maybe a more holistic view we have to take? Mm-hmm. Well, what I've learned from working on climate change is that you can't deal with everything in isolation. Everything's connected. And I think that's the whole kind of essence of environmentalism and taking that holistic view of the relation between people, uh, planet, and profits. Um, and I think that kind of um, view of the world that starts to say, how do we optimize that uh, in a way which uh, really helps us make complex and difficult trade-offs that are best uh, for 
all uh, participants in society is at the heart of the, the challenge that you presented us there with, Sean. And I think these are really good but difficult conversations to have and we can work our way through what's the right way to approach some of these things. And I think that's actually quite an exciting way of thinking about uh, the future. You've got a great job title as well, Head of Climate Change. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's, that's your second position with such a title as well. Um, it's fascinating to see those kind of roles emerging in business at all, not least banking. But I mean, what, what does that mean in practical terms? What, what exactly do you do within the bank? Mm. Well, um, I and my team really see us as a catalyst for change. I mean, we're not the ones who can deliver uh, climate change across the whole organisation. We're really setting um, the trajectory and giving the support that enables uh, the organisation to deal with that. And uh, I, I got really interested in climate change when I heard Al Gore speak and then I thought, how can I best use the skills and experience that I've had uh, to promote uh, climate action? Uh, and when I was at the World Bank, I was very lucky to be involved in the, the Paris Agreement. We managed to persuade uh, President Jim Kim that addressing climate change was going to be central to the bank's mission of eradicating extreme poverty. Uh, and one of the things that we did was commit to uh, increasing our climate finance from 15% as it was pre-Paris uh, to 28% uh, by 2020. And as we went through that process, I saw the power of finance in changing the way in which things get done. And, and it's very much at a country level uh, because we were lending to, um, to, to governments, uh, but also at an industry and sector level. Uh, and, and through the IFC, the, the private sector lending arm, to companies and businesses as well. So uh, when I did that role at the bank, uh, at the World Bank, I was very keen to take what I learned there and bring it back to the UK and, and found this opportunity at NatWest, uh, which had a commitment to leadership, where I felt as though I could bring a perspective that would help deliver uh, the ambition that, that NatWest had. And uh, my team and, and I have, have really enjoyed engaging with the business, seeing the level of interest and ambition that sits there and trying to tap into it and harness it, create our story about what we're doing and um, set the context for achieving the goals that we set. So it's, yeah, it's a really privileged position, Sean, to be working in these roles. Um, and it does feel as though uh, we're making some really significant change in the way in which um, finance can mobilize action and, and make sure that this transition goes as smoothly and as effectively as possible. Because if we don't make the transition, we're going to end up in a really difficult place because uh, a two and or even a two degree temperature rise puts enormous strain on uh, the environmental resources that we have. And that's going to have a huge impact on people. So the cynics here will turn around and say, oh, it's just greenwashing. You know, everybody puts a green badge on something, but that sounds like it's far more complex. So how does that happen, particularly in the world of finance? You know, how does, some, does somebody just wake up one day and say, no, what we need, we need a head to climb it. You know, and you, you talked about the skills you had and how you hoped they can be brought to, to bear on, on the issues here. How did it come together for you? Well, it was really... Um, about working with others, I think, and that sort of desire to collaborate and bring 
um, the knowledge that I've got and, and help others understand and appreciate the challenges that we face. Um, and I think NatWest were a really great uh, organization for that because they'd already done a lot of the thinking as uh, committing to this purpose-led strategy. And through Alison Rose, our chief executive, had a massive advocate uh, for what uh, we're doing on climate change. Um, and she's personally very heavily involved. So we have that um, authorizing environment that enables us to do uh, some really powerful and engaging things. And we can communicate that effectively through our communications team. And we'll be doing that um, in our sponsorship of the COP. And each individual business franchise is also doing really exciting and interesting work. Coops for a long time, our wealth management business, have been focusing on sustainable investment and working with others to build a sustainable fund management uh, approach. And it's very powerful um, to uh, start to scale that up and to really mainstream it into everything that we do. So I'm, uh, I'm excited about um, helping make that transition. And I'm excited about our engagement with customers who are also really uh, thirsting for knowledge and support in, in getting on this journey. You, you mentioned there about the realization of the power of finance, particularly in this, this sector. But there's many organizations have got some brilliant ideas uh, of how they think they can help contribute to fighting climate change. But they often face, you know, given the length of time, it can sometimes be you know, a fatal delay or challenges in trying to access this kind of money. Um, what can be done to help unlock that or make it easier for those, particularly those maybe who it's still unproven, you know, it's like mm. a new approach, a new idea, and perhaps there's an element of risk that banks aren't used to taking. You know, is, mm. is that a, an issue? Do banks have to look at changing their methods of lending? Is there, is there other ways to, to take these issues on? Well, I, I think uh, the answer to that is, is yes. Um, and if we think of it from a customer point of view, 88% uh, of businesses uh, want to put in place a sustainable strategy. I mean, they believe in sustainability, but about half just don't know where to start. So I think our role uh, as a bank is uh, relates to information and data. I mean, that's how we assess where risk lies in the economy and how we price our capital. So I think it's really important that we get uh, access to good quality, consistent and reliable data uh, to support decision-making and embed climate uh, in all the decisions that we're making around credit and pricing. Um, and that's how we can also help our clients tap into this wall of ESG finance that's out there and start to build um, a financing structure, a funding structure that's actually lower cost because their commitments are actually reflected in the reduced risk that they have and the appeal that they make for this ESG finance that uh, that we can help them to connect with. And that's how that's how we see the world, really. And I think, again, for banks, uh, it is different because we're starting to constrain ourselves, not just by the way in which we allocate our capital, but the carbon that sits on our balance sheet. And as we set ourselves ambitious targets, we're going to have to break down the trajectory to deliver those targets. And then we're going to have to allocate our capital in a way that's consistent with reducing the carbon intensity of our balance sheet. So it's a really, it's a really um, exciting but complex 
set of issues that we're trying to deal with. Um, and we've got some great brains that sit within the organization and with many of our partners that help us think this through. And of course, there's a huge amount of collaboration that takes place across the industry as well. You mentioned the, the bank's carbon balance sheet there. It's an interesting phrase. And it got me thinking about the changes that have come around because of um, Brexit and their relationship with Europe, and specifically on the emissions trading schemes. Obviously, mm-hmm. the, the UK version is now up and running. Is that something that's very much on the horizon for the bank, or is it you just went to see how it rolls out? Well, I think uh, to get a slightly technical here, of course, there's that we have the compliance markets, which is where the EU ETS and also the UK carbon market take place. And I think, as I said right at the very beginning, this is about pricing that externality. And what we've seen is the prices increase, uh, which has an impact on uh, the ability to um, offset emissions for those that have been issued uh, permits but are actually uh, emitting more than than they require. So it's driving emissions lower. So you know the compliance markets are a very very important part of what we're doing. But alongside that sits the voluntary carbon markets. And as you probably know, that um, Mark Carney and uh, Bill Winters and Standard Chartered and Bill Gates have put together this task force for scaling up the voluntary carbon markets. And we're a part of that. We really want to understand the role that the voluntary carbon markets can play. But we do need high quality, environmentally robust uh, carbon credits that we can promote and uh, use ourselves and help our customers get access to. Uh, So again, we see that as a really interesting innovation that's going to come. Um, And it needs to be um, scaled up and it needs to be professionalized. And the price needs to reflect better uh, the social cost of carbon. At the moment, the the voluntary carbon markets are relatively low prices compared to the compliance market. So we've got to think about all those dynamics that are taking place and use them uh, for the advantage of you know, mobilising finance for climate action. And I think this, again, is is really interesting. Do you think we will ever come to a day when people be compelled to go down that road? The road of, uh, of offsetting and... Um, yeah. yeah. Um, well, I think the, the regulation, I think, works, is quite interesting in terms of the dynamics around that. And, of course, we're doing our stress tests for the Bank of England around... The impact on our portfolio. Uh, I, I don't know whether there will be a mandatory requirement to do it, but um, you, you have to think about how the targets are going to drive different behaviours. Um, and as you start to think about the carbon on your balance sheet, you're going to have to think about what's the best way to reduce that carbon on the balance sheet. Is it to um, buy into the offset market? Uh, Or is it to actually work with customers and uh, help to reduce the emissions on each individual lending operation and activity that um, sits around it? Uh, And those choices have got to be made in a a way that has complete integrity. I mean, if we get to the point where we're trying to offset everything, but they're not additional to the emissions reductions that are happening through the planet because – they're just, you know, people are sort of gaming it and greenwashing it to use your phrase earlier. Then we'll we'll grab uh, defeat from the jaws of victory. We won't get to that point where 
we meaningfully across the global economy are reducing emissions. So you, you know we have to we have to do all of this with great integrity. And the guidance that we get from the work that we're doing is we use the offsetting as a last resort, really, for those stubborn emissions that we can't uh, deal with ourselves. And I think that's really very good advice. So that's looking way ahead, I think, where you're, where Chris the ball. But here now, one thing the banks are doing is things like the Entrepreneur Accelerator Program. Mm. You know, when that was announced, I think. 25%, I believe, was put mm-hmm. down for environmental activities, but was oversubscribed pretty much straight away. Is, is that something that surprises you, or is it something that more can be done to encourage that kind of activity? Well, I think it's very encouraging to see that level of interest. Personally, I'm not surprised. Um, before I did this job, I was uh, responsible for the Circular Economy Programme in London, and we had a a very successful program of supporting uh, SMEs. Um, And SMEs really want to get help and support. So opening up uh, our accelerator program for uh, sustainable businesses uh, seemed to be a really smart thing to do. Um, And I think that we're committed to really increasing our support. Uh, You've probably seen the Springboard to Recovery report that we issued so that we can remove barriers to enterprise and help the economy build back better and stronger. And we've worked again with others in the British Chambers of Commerce and the Federation of Small Businesses. And we want to get those tools into the hands of our customers so that making them available through the accelerator is a really, uh, really great way of doing it. And we're delighted to see the level of demand that there is for those uh, services and that support. And I've also seen that you've been partnering with sort of universities and other organisations including a, a new thing that's been launched with, I believe, the University of Edinburgh and RBS uh, through it'll be the Edinburgh Climate Change Institute. And that seems to be, my understanding is, the bank will provide specialist advice and offer some kind of practical solutions to SMEs in partnership with, with that organisation. This, this is really new. So can you explain that a bit more to us? Can you tell us any more about it? Yeah, well, I think this is a great thing to be doing in the run-up to COP26 in Glasgow in in November. Um, It's a really good way of uh, helping us uh, mobilise the finance that we've committed for the sector and for sustainability. Um, And we're really delighted to be working with the University of Edinburgh and their uh, Climate Change Institute uh, to deliver this programme, which we think is going to make a big difference to the Scottish SME community. Um, you know, we all are touched by the way in which these small and medium-sized enterprises form the lifeblood of the economy in Scotland. Um, and, you know, for Scotland to really host COP26 in November and get access to the support that the Edinburgh Climate Change Institute and the Royal Bank of Scotland can provide. Uh, is going to bring you know great insight and make our offer to those businesses ever more relevant. So um, it, it, you know we we feel really positive around the relationship with the University of Edinburgh, uh, and this is going to help you know Scotland and communities and small and medium sized enterprises prepare for a greener future. So um, it's it's a it's a really good step forward. And it shows the real power of collaboration as well because. If that finance and advice and expertise wasn't available, you know, it would just be left adrift. Yeah, yeah, completely. And of course, uh, 
it's easy to for us to use our scale to do you know provide these tools once rather than everybody have to work it out from first principles by themselves uh, and of course um, Edinburgh University have some brilliant academics who work there as well with great knowledge of climate change so tapping into our network and their capabilities and knowledge is just a great way of uh, expanding support very quickly and very efficiently and that West group itself was going to set up a climate centre of excellence. What kind of work has happened there? Yeah, so that's the team that I lead, Sean, and uh, we've got um, a relatively small team, but it's uh, staffed by dedicated, committed and knowledgeable climate uh, experts. Um, and they uh, engage with the business uh, on the specific technical issues that we face, whether that's around uh, understanding the emissions at a sectoral level, which is something that we've been working on for the last couple of years. We published the first four sectors uh, last um, year, and this year we'll be doing the rest of them. Um, and we're also working uh, to uh, create one bank-wide opportunities that we can focus on, such as mobilizing finance for the built environment uh, for energy efficiency and, and retrofit at scale. Uh, you know, the work that we're doing in partnership with Octopus around uh, electric vehicles and making electric vehicle charging um, uh, networks available to our retail customers and also to our business customers. Um, so we're very, as I said at the beginning, we're very catalytic in terms of the way in which we approach it. Uh, we've got some tremendously uh, bright and committed people and there's a sort of uh, energy and enthusiasm that I think is kind of permeating the whole organisation. You say it's a small team and a big organisation. Are you also able to enable other colleagues, give them a voice to, to ideas and things they want to see as part of the place where they work? Yeah, I mean, and to be honest, Sean, we wouldn't be able to stop them. I mean, many people are uh, engaging. That We have an extraordinary network of young, primarily young people in the Sustainable Futures Network uh, who uh, want to build sustainability into everything we do in the bank. And they're constantly coming up with really great ideas. Uh, they're constantly pushing us to do more. Uh, so we tap into that energy. And of course, at each of the individual business levels and within all of the um, the support functions, we have expertise that are driving through financial reporting, uh, that are picking up the risk management side of things, that are doing the really important work around uh, communication and marketing, um, and they're driving it through the, the retail franchise, you know, the commercial franchise, and I talked a little bit about the wealth management um, franchise as well, and of course through the, the, the NatWest Markets, which is the investment bank that does a lot of the green and social and sustainability bonds related uh, issues. So it's really, in many ways, it's it's directing that energy to the maximum impact that we can have as an organization and using the clarity of the strategy that we have to make sure it's aligned and that we're prioritizing as efficiently and rigorously as we possibly can. So that's your organization. Presumably similar things will be happening with other banks and other lenders, etc. Given the critical importance of finance and delivering some solutions to climate change, is there an argument to say there should be a more collegiate approach in some way? Is, is there 
some kind of unifying drive whereby you can be working together to help solve some of the bigger problems at least? Uh, well, I think um, that's happening a lot. I mean, the the, the um, Banking Alliance for Net Zero is a very galvanizing force that gets us all thinking about this together. Uh, obviously, we have to work in the pre-competitive space. We, we don't at any stage want to impinge on you know the uh, competitiveness that we have between each other, but we can learn uh, from each other. And we have some really great collaborations uh, with um, you know various groups who are looking at our net zero commitments, whether we're looking at the carbon markets as well, uh, sustainable infrastructure, and each uh, each bank plays its own role, brings its own experiences, and uh, we learn and challenge each other as well. Um, we've just done some benchmarking in terms of how we feel our announcements have gone against other banks, and it challenges us to sort of say, well, you know, we, we got this leadership position. People are catching up. We've got to work out how to stay ahead. And it forces us always to um, challenge ourselves to do more. And we we tap into that as much as we possibly can. This combination of collaboration and competition can be a very powerful and galvanizing force. And how much of these changes are being driven by um, your customers themselves? Because you can see the clear logic in the bank deciding to pivot one way or another and to, to lay down the challenges, perhaps change the products it has. But it, you, you're absolutely right. You don't want to have some kind of flavour of vanilla when it comes to banking. People still want a choice. What are you learning from the data you gather? What, what's the feedback in terms of people who want a particular kind of mortgage, perhaps, or they want to, yeah. to buy a product, an EV, or what, what have you? Yeah. Well, I, I think... Um, Johan Rockström, who's a, a climate scientist, said this very well. Um, we have to make sure that the most sustainable products are also the best and the cheapest. Um, and we need to get towards you know, the green discount rather than the green premium. Um, and I think, again, that's where finance can be really very powerful. Because if you're going to invest more money in a heat pump in your home, for example, you're going to reduce your bills uh, quite considerably over time, as well as your carbon emissions. But you need a bit of help to get that upfront capital to invest in the heat pump. Um, same is true with electric vehicles. Their, their purchase cost is higher than the equivalent internal combustion engine, but their running costs are much lower. So this is, I think, where the power of finance can come in. You can reduce the day-to-day uh, -day costs uh, because that combination of the running costs and the interesting the cost and the repayment of the capital is actually cheaper than than what was happening before, um, and um, I think um, you know we'll see that we've seen that in renewables. It's amazing the price at which uh, solar and wind has come down, um, and now they are competitive with and often cheaper than uh, fossil fuel sources of energy. Um, but as I said before, you've got to think about it as a system. You know, they do have intermittency. So how do you build the storage system that sits around uh, renewables? And we'll do that through smart grids and through electric vehicles. And you'll be able to charge up your electric vehicle at night when you're not using much electricity and the wind's blowing quite effectively. And then you'll be able to discharge it um, at some point in the future when, when it's required. So it's again, it's a really interesting 
rethinking of the way in which we do things. And we've done it before. I mean, we've, we've reinvented our relationship with technology over the last 20 years. It's quite incredible how you and I can talk like this um, and look at each other and see each other and how we've managed everything from the pandemic. You know, that kind of shift that we've had, that technology has enabled, we can continue through a low-carbon ambition that will create a much better world to live in. I mean, there'll be much less pollution and, and, and emissions, and that will have real uh, health benefits for many people and communities as well. So that's the sort of optimistic view of the future that we can kind of be part of, and we can use our money to enable that to happen. I think you make an interesting point with regards to fossil fuels versus renewables there as well. There seems to be this split in opinion between everybody agreeing that a low carbon future is the way forward. But it seems to be about the timing of that and the questioning of its, its ability. Scientists tell us we have to stop exploring for oil and gas now. Politicians are splitting the issue. Opinion poll after opinion poll suggests that the majority of people want to make that transition. But then you have this balancing act of what happens to the jobs. Can the infrastructure be repurposed for renewables? Mm. It remains, particularly in Scotland, the elephant in the room. Mm. What way do you think banks will go in terms of financing these schemes in the future or looking mm. to new technologies down the line? Yeah, well, I, th I think there's very much at the top of our mind is how do we finance this transition and how do we support the transition? And particularly in the North Sea, I mean, it's a very real challenge for the Scottish economy. Um, but it's amazing to see how uh, energy services businesses that were servicing offshore oil and gas platforms can quickly develop the capabilities and the propositions that support offshore wind uh, installation or servicing. Um, and, you know, the power of entrepreneurship and of um, the ability of uh, successful businesses to reinvent themselves as they see the market opportunities, I think is what gives me confidence that we'll be able to manage that. And again, you know, we need to send those long-term signals so that people can prepare for it. And I think that's going to be particularly important in uh, energy efficiency and retrofitting homes and housing. I mean, you, you want a supply chain that knows that there's going to be a high level of demand there for many years. And they can then invest not just in the infrastructure and kit and equipment that they need, but also in the, the capabilities, the learning and the know-how that's going to be really important to support uh, people making that uh, transition and, and, and driving uh, towards that lower carbon future. There, there's often a suggestion that people like the status quo. You know, it's, this is the way it's always been done. You know, it's going to take years for this to happen. We'll just carry on the way we've always been doing things. Mm -hmm. How do we change that attitude and that acceleration to the transition? Is it education? Is it incentive? Is it just forcing people down a particular mm. path? Or is it a combination of all those things? Yeah, well, I, I think inevitably it's a combination of all of those things. I, I think what, um, what I think can be very powerful is uh, the early adopters, those people that see the benefits and are prepared to uh, get out ahead of everybody else and demonstrate that uh, these sorts of things can be done. 
uh, a really powerful ways of sending a signal to everybody else that the uh, the, the future is potentially better out there. And you see that in uh, the adoption of other uh, technologies. You know, the, there is the traditional adoption curve that shows the exponential growth. Uh, and a lot of work was done by, you know, mobile phone uh, companies uh, as they rolled out their technology to get the early adopters to pick it up and use it. And then it becomes universal over a period of time. Now, I'm not saying we've got all the answers in the climate space around that at the moment, but that sort of mindset and approach, I think, works quite well. And then getting the balance right between regulation and incentives is also important. And I think the regulation is is a signal that long-term policy is going to be driving us towards this agenda for quite a while. And therefore, uh, it's going to be in everybody's best interest to come aboard on that journey. Um, and again, I would go back to what Jörn Roxham said, which is let's make it as easy as possible for people to do it and people to find a way to be a part of this transformation. Now, you've been in this sector for a long time now. You know, you've, you've developed this expertise. You've been working with all manner of people who you know, are world-renowned for, for their views. It's probably a horrible question, but in terms of society as a whole, do you think we are yet doing enough or do we all have to step up? Well, I, I think I think we all have to step up. I mean, I think you know this is the decisive decade, um, and the window for dealing with climate change uh, is closing very very rapidly. Um, uh, you know, I, I don't like to be an alarmist about a lot of these things, but you know. We're seeing the weather patterns change quite considerably. It was 34 degrees up in the Arctic a couple of weeks ago when it was unseasonably cold here in the UK. And that's because the Gulf Stream is weakening and the low pressure sits over Europe and the hot air goes up and into the Arctic. So um, there's no way we can ignore uh, these effects and we have to be... Uh, really focused on what we can do and what we can achieve. Um, and we have to drive the agenda as quickly and as efficiently as we possibly can. So I, I don't think there's any choice, uh, Sean, to be honest. And I do think we need that sort of urgency and collective commitment. Otherwise, the window will close and we'll find ourselves having to deal with much, much greater problems. At least there's one thing we're, we're talking about. it. We're doing podcasts like this. You're going around the country speaking to people. We have COP26 arriving here in Scotland in November, of which the bank's uh, principal sponsor. What kind of opportunity does that give us as a country, us as a, a planet, us as a society to you know, tackle exactly these issues that you raised there? Well, for two weeks, Glasgow and Scotland will be uh, the spotlight of the world. I mean, the, the global leaders are expected to come and, and convene there and set the levels of ambition that are required to deliver uh, the Paris Agreement. This is this is the most important COP since Paris uh, because there was a, a, a five year, it's turned out to be six year um, ratchet in terms of the increase in ambition. Uh, so Scotland's got a marvellous opportunity to put itself centre stage uh, in that um, discussion and, of course, show case some of the leading work that that's been going on in Scotland, whether it's um, 
on the tidal and renewables or whether it's uh, some of the technology that's emerging and some of the small businesses that have done amazing things around the circular economy, for example. Um, so it will be a tremendous opportunity for Scotland to showcase itself. If I'm honest, I'm a little bit worried that it's going to be quite cold compared to uh, Marrakesh and, um, uh, and and Lima, which were warm weather cops. So I think everybody will also have to bring their warm clothing with them as well. Do you think they can actually deliver something tangible this time around? Because with the pandemic, with the fact that some nations might not be able to get here because of it, perhaps some of these deals been done months and months in advance behind closed doors between the, the bigger nations. Will there be a legacy, do you think, from the COP in Scotland? Is it going to be like the Paris Agreement whereby we'll be talking about this for years and years to come? Yeah, well, Mark Carney talks about uh, climate change being at the heart of every financial decision as a result of Glasgow. And Glasgow's already got the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero named after it. So I think that will be a, a permanent legacy. And, you know, it's one that we think about and we're very proud to have contributed to. Um, I think also this um, mobilizing of ambition and the leadership that many of the countries will have already shown. I mean, the Biden summit showed that many countries were stepping up in terms of their commitments, uh, will also galvanize the private sector. And we'll see a lot of uh, engagement through the private sector saying that they can be part of this transition, that they want to be part of this transition, that they have the solutions that are going to enable that to happen. Uh, and of course, you'll have the non-governmental organizations as well, and plus representatives of emerging markets who will be saying, look, you know, let's be realistic. We need the money to enable this to happen. And of course, one of the core uh, requirements of Glasgow is that uh, we identify and uh, mobilize the $100 billion of finance that was um, committed in the Paris Agreement uh, to make sure that developing countries have access to the funds that are going to enable them to support adaptation to the climate change that's already there, plus also um, reducing their own emissions in their own development trajectories. Uh, and I think I think we can do that. I think that, that, that it's well set to enable us to have that conversation and to uh, leave that tremendous legacy that people refer to Glasgow as the turning point of how we really started turning commitments into action. You've probably just hinted at the answer to this next question, but I'll ask you anyway, which is, if you can see just one thing happen at COP26, for you, what should that be? Well, uh, the, we, will, we will be led by the nationally determined contributions. And those are the sort of building blocks of the uh, Paris architecture. Uh, and they're what in, each individual country is committing to in terms of their emissions trajectory. Um, they will have to be a lot more ambitious than they were in Paris because that gave us, you know, three degrees of warming. And early sort of submissions suggested that um, we weren't going to get to anywhere near the one and a half degrees. But the commitments that China, the US, Japan, Korea, the EU are making are starting to make a big difference towards that uh, one and a half degree target. So I think that's the thing. If we can come out with that, with a with a confident view that governments are prepared to lead towards one and a half degrees, then the rest can fit around it. 
But of course, it's not just going to be one thing, Sean. This is a, this is a complex interrelationship of stakeholders, you know, both at the governmental level and at the non-governmental level, which is UN language for, uh, for businesses and cities um, and financiers. Uh, and we're all going to have to work together to pull to this vision of the future and to make it happen. Are you still a stubborn optimist then? Um, I am, Sean, yeah. I mean, I, I don't think we have any alternative. Um, and I have to say, over the course of the last year or so, uh, the momentum that's building uh, gives me great cause for hope uh, that we can face you know, what is a genuinely existential challenge with a sense of uh, realism and purpose that's going to make a big difference. So yes, I am very much a stubborn optimist, uh, Sean. And on that note, we bring this episode of Sustainable Scotland to an end. Thanks very much indeed to James Close, Head of Climate for NatWest Group. Well, thank you, Sean. It's been great talking to you and really look forward to seeing you up in Glasgow. And thanks also to Craig Sinclair and Mark Wilson for producing today's show. And mostly for you for taking the time once again to listen in. Let us know your thoughts on this episode and any issues you'd like us to cover in the future by tweeting us at The Scotsman. And don't forget to look out for Ilona Amos bringing you all the best environmental coverage in digital and print. We have one more episode of this season to come, so please do subscribe to Sustainable Scotland so you don't miss it wherever you get your podcasts.